Thanks for listening to the Grace First podcast. If you want to know more about us, head on over to gracefirst.church. Or if you're in the Wichita area, come visit us Sundays at 1015. All right, good morning. If you have your Bibles, open them to Luke 15. Luke 15. Uh, we are going to do the product, tackle the prodigal son. Now, before we get going, we are taking this from a 30,000-foot view of this passage. There is no way I could exhaust the entirety of the passage uh, today in one sermon. In fact, most people try to at least do two or three sermons on this passage. So you get a five-point sermon uh, in one day. So Chili can wait. <laughs> so we're going to... Take a look at this, though. I'm, I, this is something that's been impressed on my heart. I've actually, I was talking with my wife, and I've never preached on the prodigal son. I think I've taught a Sunday school lesson on it. Um, but it's always been one of my favorite passages uh, to show a picture of God's mercy in such a radical way. And so I wanted to take the time to, to, to work through it today. Um, and, and I really want us to understand a few things before we actually get into the, the body of the text in verse 11. Um, you know, so Jesus at the end of chapter 14 actually says, um, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Remember, there's no chapter breaks, there's no verse breaks, there's none of that stuff in the original writing, the original text. And so it would flowed straight from that into the very next part of the passage uh, that was to come. And so we see actually in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15 who the audience is and what's actually taking place and going on. And so now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, so you have tax collectors, you have sinners, you have the people that those who are in the righteous elite believed were the worst of the worst. And then you've got the righteous elite there as well. And I'm just going to be honest with you. Uh, I have written really large amen after the last part of verse two. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Amen to that. I hope that we can be said the same in our lives and we're not hiding ourselves into our little clubs and not reaching the lost. So it's important to keep in mind who's listening through this entire passage. So I want to make sure we understand that this is who's there, this is who's listening, and this is who Jesus is talking to. Sinners and Pharisees. The Pharisees who, in a few chapters later in Luke, would say, I'm glad I'm not like this sinner over here. Uh, and then those same Pharisees that Jesus told just a few chapters earlier that I didn't come for the sick, or I didn't come for the, the healthy, I came for the sick. And so we have this picture of these two completely diverse groups listening as he teaches through three different parables. So starting in verse 11, we'll read through this parable together. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days after, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out, out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything." But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. 
And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For the son, this my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and treated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found quick prayer. God, we thank you again for this morning. We thank you for your word. We pray, God, that it is only what you want us to hear that comes uh, out of this. And we pray, Lord, that your word would speak so loudly and clearly to us. And we wouldn't just hear it this morning and walk away like someone who looks in the mirror and walks away and forgets what they look like. But they would, we would hear this this morning and be challenged to change, to be more like you in our walk. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So in this passage in chapter 15, we actually have three parables that take place. We've got the lost sheep, we've got the lost coin, and now we have the lost son. The lost sheep, as most theologians talk about this passage, they notice that the lost sheep is it's naturally lost. Sheep are dumb, sheep get lost, sheep wander off, and they are naturally and haphazardly lost. The coin was helplessly lost. It couldn't have done anything for itself. It didn't roll away. It was helplessly lost, and it's going to lay there in wherever it's at until someone seeks and finds it. And now you have the first point of our sermon today is willfully lost. This son is willfully lost. In all three, we see a picture of God, though, that he is seeking the lost. The first one, the shepherd went and found the sheep, even though it's one out of 100 it was still enough, important enough to go find that one sheep. The woman had lost one coin out of ten, which still doesn't seem like that much. She still has 90%, but she spent the entire day sweeping and looking. I'm just imagining, right? She probably asked her husband to look. He didn't find it. And then she looked, and of course it was there. That's how it happens. There's nothing more nerve-wracking to a husband than one who has said, I didn't find it, and then the wife starts to look. So, but it's one out of ten, and she seeks it, and she searches for it, and she finds it, and she rejoices over a coin, rejoicing over one sheep, rejoicing over one coin, and now a son who is far more greater of a treasure than any sheep or coin could possibly be. And the sinners in this audience would have been listening intently because this is a story that they have not heard before. This isn't one of the ones where you go to the temple and they read something and they tell you how bad you are and you have to do sacrifices and whatever else. This is a story from a man who is claiming to be God, who they have followed around and who are intently listening to this man, and now he's telling such a radical story, they would have been totally engrossed in this story. This was not the story that they had heard before, the hope that they were never given. 
So this younger brother probably had been plotting this for a while. He decides to go to his father and he says to his father, I want to take what is mine. Notice it says, give me my inheritance. Give to me what I am owed. It is with this contempt a plan would come that he's going to ask his father for this. And this is going to cut the father deeply. He wanted what his father could give him. But ultimately, in this, in this pursuit, he doesn't want the father. Give me what you have. Give me what is mine. Give me what is coming to me. But I don't really want you. It's like demanding or expecting things from God, but not desiring God himself. That's what the world does. The world will seek and desire everything that they could possibly get. Or why would God give? Or God gave? Or I am blessed? Or whatever that it is. But as soon as something bad happens, where was God? And we have this ridiculous understanding of who God is and how he gives. And so he tells his father, give me the share of the property. This is going to be about one third of everything that the father had owned. All the land and everything else. Because he's the younger brother, he would get a third. The older brother would have gotten two thirds. And so he wants this. He's essentially saying that he wants to take this. And in cultural terms, he's telling his father, I wish you were dead. Because when the father dies, that's when the inheritance is separated. So he walks up to his father and he says, I basically, I wish you were dead. Give me what is mine. I have no regard for you. I have no regard for this family. My sinful heart desires the freedom to sin. Of course, that's not going to come off his lips. But we see from actions. We know people. We know ourselves. We've done things where I would never say out loud, I wanted what my sinful desires had for me. But I wanted what my sinful desires had for me. And so with this heart, these sinful desires, he leaves brokenness, heartache, and pain behind as he pursues what he thinks is best for him. And in those days, a father could give the inheritance while he was alive, but yet you didn't cash it in at that point. You didn't look to get anything out of it because the father still had to live off of it. And so for him to go and say, while you're alive, I want it. I'm going to take it. I want it to be mine. And the father would, could give the right. And even in his inheritance and his will, he could have left the right to inherit the land. Inherit what is his. But they would never give the right to sell the land. This is generational land that had been there for a long time. So you can feel the intensity of the discomfort as this son asks for this. And then not just asks for it, but we'll see in just a minute that he can squanders it away quickly. The scripture actually uses the word for property that you can also use to mean life. The father is essentially giving his life over, his property, his value, his life over to this son. The father could have and culturally should have told the son to kick the bricks and take off and get out. You're no longer part of this family. You have been disowned. Get away from me. I have nothing to do with you. Culturally, the father would have been right in doing this. Culturally, back then, it would have been looked on as poor judgment for him not to do this. Instead, the father generously gave what the son asked. Again, I'm not trying to read into things that aren't there, but it kind of does make me think about the fact that I have asked God for things that I didn't necessarily believe were what I should have, but they're what I wanted, and he's given it to me. And I've then paid the price for the consequences of receiving that thing that I thought I needed or wanted, and yet was really not for me. 
But instead, the father gave generously what the son had asked. And notice that the son wastes no time in liquidating his assets. He immediately goes, and in the next few days, it says not many days after, he actually takes the time to liquidate the assets, which probably means he didn't get the most out of it that he probably could. But now one-third of the land and property is now somebody else's of this generational wealth and land. And this son's heart is not unlike the world today. People choose their sin over a relationship with God. Believers often choose sin over the relationship that we should have with the Father. And as I keep saying it, there are sinners on both sides of this pulpit. I stand here as a man who still sins even though I am redeemed and saved. And the problem is is that in those moments I have chosen sin over my relationship with God. There are too many rules, some people would say. The world says there's too many rules. I don't know if you've ever shared the gospel with people. I don't want to follow all of those rules. Okay, but you follow rules in everyday life. And these aren't rules. These are commands. And in the beauty of these commands is freedom. Like, it doesn't make any logical sense. But in the midst of these things that the Lord has for us is actually ultimately freedom. But to us... To the lost, to the son, the world looks a whole lot more enjoyable. There's way better stuff out there. There's way better things that I can experience out there. And our heart turns to a heart that is far more concerned about the little tiny things that shouldn't matter a whole lot in the scope of the grand scheme of eternity. And we spend all of our time dwelling on them. Like a certain person's ankle all week is all I've heard about from people. (laughs) So what? We haven't cared for our neighbor, but we care about this dude's ankle. And I'm not against the person, but come on, people. We've spent more time obsessing over a game than we have over the Word of God. We will pursue our happiness despite the emptiness. You'll be angry about a game that is lost. Hopefully not. (laughs) More so than we'll be upset about the fact that I haven't reached people with the gospel. So the son goes off to a far off country and begins living the life. He's living the life he'd always wanted. This is exactly how I want to live. I didn't want to be in my father's oppressive house. I wanted to go away. I wanted to live this life. I'm doing everything that I possibly could think of. And I'm sure he was the toast of whatever town or village that he was living in at the time. I'm sure he was thought of by all these people as he squanders his wealth away to be the greatest partier of all time. And they're, they're loving the fact that he's a part of their community And he probably found every vice that he could have possibly looked for. We don't know what he fell into. The brother speculates what he fell into, but we don't know. But he probably was able to find any vice, and he lived it up. And this is the life he had always dreamed of, the life he had always wanted. And what did he get from this worldly desire? Nothing. Every worldly desire that is not of God, every worldly desire produces ultimately in the end nothing. Because what does the Bible say is going to happen at the end? It's going to be thrown into the fire and it's going to be burned up and consumed. 
Listen to, please listen to this. This is something I've been resonating with a lot, and, and I hope this resonates with you. If you're struggling, if you're walking in sin, if you're, and again, this story is not just about a lost son that wanders off. This is, believers can press into this as well. Sin's ability to interest and satisfy are not equal or eternal. Sin's ability to interest and satisfy are not equal and eternal. It will interest you, whatever it is. You have yours, I have mine, we all have stuff. And it will interest us, but it will never satisfy us. Why are we pressing into and spending so much time on something that actually has no ultimate satisfaction? It's like drinking salt water. If you're thirsty and you're on the beach and you have no water, I still do not recommend drinking the ocean. It will not satisfy, and it ultimately will really only harm you. And that's what sin is. So he's left with no friends. He's left in the lowest place that a, a Jew could be. He has now been hired out, and he's going to work with pigs. Now he's unclean. So he's not just on a far-off land without any money or anything to do. He's working a job that he doesn't probably want to work. And now he's become unclean by working with pigs. You may be in this place. If you've never put your faith in Christ, and in a room this size, there's got to be at least one, if not multiple people, who have never truly put their faith in Christ. You may have the perception that all is good that you are living a life that you've always wanted to live, that things are happening for you, that things are actually going well. You've got your great house, you've got kids, you've got a wife, you've got a great job, you've got friends, you've got things that you never thought that you were have. And it's really hard for people who grew up poor and now have more than they've ever thought they were going to have because this is what I've always wanted. Your life doesn't have to be in shambles. In fact, it might look pretty darn good. But ultimately, in your sin, all those things are a pig pen away from God. What ultimate satisfaction eternally? Ask this question of yourself for the things that you hold the tightest to. What ultimate satisfaction is there really in this? Believer, while you cannot lose your salvation, you can fall in love with your sin and the things that you're running after. Are you running after the things that are of God? Or are you running after the things of the world? Unbeliever, who is here? Maybe you thought, I'm just going to show up to church today. You're not here by accident. The sovereignty of God placed you in a seat to hear a sermon today about this. Are you running from God because you have no desire to be a part of what God's family is, says, does. You don't know what the word actually says. You don't know, understand what salvation really is. You're just living life hoping that there's something better around the turn. What are you trying to achieve? What are you looking for? Are you more like this son who is running, trying to get what he wants, all while the father waits lovingly for you to come? So we get to a beautiful part here. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, point two is when he came to end of self, when he came to himself, a better way to put it and a more right way to put it would he comes to the end of himself. He has hit rock bottom. If you've ever hit rock bottom, you know rock bottom. It's, it's not hard. There's only one way, and it's up. And I know that's a cliche saying, but when you've hit rock bottom, you know that there's only one way to go. So when the money had run out, 
The friends were gone. He was left with nothing. It says in verse 14 through 16 that when the money ran out, he hired himself out to feed pigs. He was so hungry, he longed to eat the pods that the pigs were eating. I don't know if you've ever seen pig food. I don't know if I've ever longed to eat anything like that. But he longs to just fill his belly with the pig's food. He's starving. He was so hungry and so starved and so left alone that he is now broken in his sin. All those people he had party with, all those people that were around him, all those people that experienced the fun had nothing to give. It said they had nothing to give him. And he's facing this famine in the land and he's facing this famine in his heart. He's facing this famine in his soul. And he's living in the midst of this and he has officially hit rock bottom and is in disgrace. There was no ultimate joy in that sin. I'm going to tell you at the end of the story, if you're in sin and you're struggling with sin, I don't care what the sin is, there is no joy in the end of that sin. Then he came to himself. He came to the end of himself. Even though he had run out on his father, he had hope and mercy, hope for mercy. He wasn't going back because he was tormented by guilt. We know that something's going on in his heart. Remember, he says this. I'm going to go back and I'm going to tell him, I have sinned against heaven and before you. He's going to go back with a repentant heart before the Lord. But he's not necessarily going back because he's tormented by guilt. He's going back hoping for mercy. He could have stayed in the pig pen. He could have felt guilty. He could have wallowed in it, pun intended. He could have stayed there and just left himself in the mud, in the muck, in the mire with the pigs. He could have hoped that somebody would have come by and given him something every once in a while. He could have hoped that the pig pods would actually help him and help sustain him and he would actually end up living the rest of his life in this hole. Or he could go back to his father and hope for mercy and grace just to be a slave for him. That was his idea. His idea is if I go back to my father and receive grace and mercy, I'll be a slave. And the father's so much more gracious than that. He can confess his sin because he has hope and mercy from his father. It may look like he was rehearsing his words. That's what I used to think when I was younger. I used to think, oh, he's just rehearsing. If you've ever been in trouble with your parents, or you know you're going to be in trouble with your parents, and you're on your way home, or you're like waiting at home. So when we were kids, uh, my mom didn't find out what actually happened to this until I wrote about it my senior year. But we were kids, and we thought bobsled looked amazing. And so we put my sister in a box at the top of the stairs and put a helmet on her. And we pushed the box down the stairs, and there's this right turn, and she didn't make the right turn. Somehow in a box going downstairs, she didn't make a right turn, and her head went through the wall. But the thing is, is that we spent, like, my brother and I ran off to our rooms and left my sister on the landing uh, recovering, and we, we spent the rest of the day like, okay, she fell. Like, that's it. Which there's this perfect hole, and it was a plastic baseball helmet. So it's the hole of the baseball helmet and the, the bill that she had on backwards pressed into it. So there's no head looks like this. But she fell. She tripped. It was an accident. And we created this whole entire story because we knew, not just when my mom got home, but when my dad got home and his belt got home, we didn't really want to experience that pain. So for me as a kid, I'm, watching, I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, oh, man, he is rehearsing this. I've been there. Like, I'm coming back with my story, and I hope that he buys it. 
But as I've learned more of the depth of what this was actually written as, the original language, the way that this was written, and the way that Jesus told the story, that's not at all it. He has literally come to the end, and he is saying, I have sinned. I have sinned. I have sinned against heaven and before you. These are not the words of a proud heart. If you've ever confessed and repented, truly repented of something, you don't have a proud heart. You have a broken heart. These are the words of a broken person who has come to a realization of their sin. He left proud and returns in humility with repentance as his heart's desire. And this is significant. We must, in order to be saved, realize that our sin before a holy God is not okay. That we have to come back with a repentant heart and ask the Lord to forgive us. He is faithful and just to forgive us if we confess our sins before him. One of the hardest things is believing that he will. I've, I've screwed up a lot. This is, this is like the 547,000th time I've done this thing. I actually read something this week that has helped me. It's, it's put together like this. It says, objection. But I have often relapsed and fallen into the same sin again and again. Answer. If Christ will have us pardon our brother 77 times, can we think he will press us to do more than he will be ready to do himself? Amen. He can go back to the Father for mercy and grace no matter what he has done because he is faithful and just to forgive. So three is he's a gracious and merciful father. So he sets off to return home. Where's the father? He is looking for the son. Does that not amaze you that the father is looking? And the thing here, the way it's written, the way we should see it is he is actively looking. He's not going out the front door, walking along the porch and going, oh, I think that's my kid. He is actively looking. He is searching, he is scanning the horizon, looking for the son who is coming back. He sees his son. So like the shepherd looked for the sheep, the woman searched her house thoroughly for the coin. The father was looking actively for his son. It seems from the language here that daily his father would have been looking in the distance for his son. And despite the fact that his son had told him, but basically, I wish you were dead. The son had sold everything off, and it appeared like he was going to be gone forever. When you sell everything, you're probably not coming back. So it looked like he was going to be gone forever, and yet, in the midst of that, the father is looking. Alistair Begg says this, God is searching you out. He is sweeping through the chapters of your life. He is walking down the corridors of your days. He is searching you out with an exacting thoroughness his loving and gracious father is looking for him and what does he do he runs to his son which again if you don't understand the cultural context doesn't seem like a big deal number one though if my dad was running full speed at me when I was a kid I'll be a little bit nervous you might have found this out from my preaching I was a little squirrely as a kid so I would probably not have had in mind, this is going to end well. I'm not, that wasn't mean. He wasn't abusive or anything. I just knew that he was firm. <laughs> so his loving and gracious father is looking and runs to him. 
men in this culture, especially older men, did not run. They would have to have pulled up the robe that they were wearing, probably showing their undergarments, and they would have been running. This would have been totally undignified for this culture. Think of it even today. If you see somebody, if you see an older person running, and there clearly doesn't seem to be a reason why they would be running, you would wonder, what in the world is this person doing? I have a friend who lives in the inner city, and he says, never trust a person running fast down the road in street clothes. This would have been very weird. And if you're a servant, or you're a person of of the house, or if you're a person who sees this guy, if you're a person of the village that sees this guy running, it would have struck you. The audience listening would have perked up even more at this point. No, that father's not going to run. That's not appropriate for him to run. And that's a bad kid. He shouldn't be running to that kid. Well, wait till you get to the part where he kisses this kid and he hugs him. He embraces him. Do you ever try to guess the end of a TV show or a movie? I always do. You get into a show on Netflix and you're on episode five and you're like, oh, I'm going to figure this out by the end. That's what's going on here. The mind of the people listening are probably trying to figure out. He's running because he's trying to get a harder punch in his face when he gets there. He's running because he can't wait to punish him. He's running because he wants to draw attention to this so more people come out and they deal with this kid. That would have been their mindset because this is how you treat kids that do these things. What was expected in the minds of those in the crowd would have been that the father is letting his son get to him or he's trying to get to his son and then he's going to cut him off. You don't come any farther. You don't get to be in this house. You don't get to be near me. You don't get to be near us anymore. You're done. You're gone. You're cut off. You're out. In fact, in this culture, if you had squandered your wealth to Gentiles, there was a cutting off ceremony that could take place. And they would literally cut the sun off. The whole village would come out. They would fill this jar with a whole bunch of burned nuts and stuff. And then they would break the jar and in front of this person say, you're banned, essentially. And you'd be banned. You'd be cut off. The cutoff ceremony was the expectation for this returning son. And the thing is, is that imagine the sons. I mean, the, the, the people sitting here can't believe this story. Because not only did the father run to the son while the son is repenting of his sin, his son does repent of his sins to the father. The father embraces him and kisses him. This is radical. This is Romans 5.8. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He ran to him. He embraced him. He kissed him. Imagine the thoughts of the people listening. Remember, it's the sinners and the outcasts and the Pharisees. Sinners and outcasts have their jaws open like, I want this. This is mercy and grace I've never heard before. And the Pharisees have to have a scale on their face thinking, nobody does that. And yet imagine the son as he is embraced by the father and he melts into that embrace and the kiss. If you have ever felt that grace from God, which if you're a believer you have, and if you've, if you've been through something and you've overwhelmingly sensed the mercy and grace of God, you have felt what the son felt, melting into the arms of a father who should have cast him off culturally and would have been okay to do so, and yet he embraced him and held him and kissed him. He gave him a robe. He gave him a ring. He returned him into his house and his family. He had a banquet. What a picture of God. God, while we were still sinners, sent his son to die so that sinners could be brought into the family. If you're lost, you could still be part of the family. God's 
heart is for you to be saved. And the son was repentant. The father's grace and mercy forgave his unrighteousness. Remember, you don't bring anything to your salvation. This son didn't bring anything to the salvation that takes place here, the forgiveness that takes place here, except for the sin that made it necessary. And yet a loving, caring father forgives without qualifications. This was far more than the son had could have believed. Sitting in that pig pen, he did not think I'm going back and I'm being forgiven. He thought, I'm going back. I'll be a servant if he'll, if he'll let me, but I might just be an outcast. He's unclean. He's coming home. He probably looks like a homeless person, a beggar. Uh, he looks terrible at this point, more than likely after the journey and not having anything. He had nothing to offer the father because if he did go off and squander everything, they, they could in Jewish culture come back with a gift and say, sorry about that. Here's a gift. And if it was accepted, then it'd be great. He didn't have a gift to give. He didn't have anything to give. All he could give was his heart's repentance to the Father, and he literally was empty and yet was shown grace and mercy. If you're here and you find yourself in the Son's shoes, grace and mercy are for you. Forgiveness for your sin through Christ is for you. If you're a believer and you're here and you are wrestling through something and you found yourself in a pit of sin because you're wrestling through it and you haven't fully given it over and you haven't put it to death, forgiveness and mercy is for you as well. You are saved. But the Lord desires to see you out of that pit if you're a believer already. And remember, there's two brothers. We'll finish up with these two things. The older brother hears the party going on. He hears all the sounds that are going on. He inquires about what's taking place with one of the servants. And he does not share in the joy that his father had. He does not share in the joy that his father had for the brother coming home. In fact, he is angry. But remember, there's two groups of people listening. Jesus is directly addressing the Pharisees here. While these lost sinners are sitting there with hope in their hearts because there could be forgiveness for them, the Pharisees are standing there angry that the Father, that God would ever give repentance or ever give forgiveness to those people. The sinners sitting there have to almost have tears in their eyes. What a picture that they would be so overwhelmed by this story. And the older brother standing right behind them as the Pharisees, hating every minute of the fact that they might receive mercy and grace. The brother is told by a servant that the brother had returned. And we don't know what was going through everyone's mind, but we know what's going through the brother's mind. He is angry. So the father, just as he went out to the other son, comes out to this son and entreats him to come in. Come in and be a part of this. Come into the house and celebrate with everyone. Your brother has been lost, but now is found. He is back. He was dead. He is now alive. Come celebrate with us. I mean, think about all the times in the Bible where somebody comes to knowing Jesus right there. They, they are encounter Christ and their life is changed. You can't argue with the power of a changed life. You can't argue with it. And these people were changed by Christ. And what did the Pharisees and the Sadducees immediately do? Shut up. Don't say anything. Go away. That didn't happen. Immediately, instead of rejoicing that this guy who had been paralyzed since he was born is now leaping for joy, they're more upset that a rule was broken. That's his brother. The 
father comes out to entreat him. If the father has forgiven, then the brother could forgive too. That's the only way in my heart and my life that I can forgive. I have learned that. There's no way in my own strength and power I can forgive. It is only because of what Christ has forgiven me of that I can forgive others as well. Because when I see the depth and weight of my sin, there is nothing that anyone can do to me that is worse than what I have done to God in my sin. He won't even recognize him as a brother, though. He says, this son of yours. The brother is, in some translations, says that he slaved for his fathers. In others, it says he served his father. But the father doesn't count the work as something that he considers for his salvation. Notice, it's not what you did for your work. The heart is the issue for the brother. Just like it is for the younger brother, the heart was the issue. The older brother, the heart is the issue as well. And for each and every one of us, a heart issue is the problem. If you're saved, it was a heart issue because you were hard-hearted against God. You were his enemy. And by God's grace, he brought you in and made you part of the family. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ yet, it is the heart issue. Your heart has to be changed by God. You have to, you have to lay that out before him and understand that your sin is keeping you from a relationship with him. So while the older brother stayed and did all the duties, he was just as lost as the younger brother. I obeyed you. I followed all your rules. I didn't even get a goat, which is like a low-level gift. He did not have his father's heart, so he was just as lost while at home. When the sheep and the coin were found, people came to celebrate. The brother should have gone in to celebrate. But the brother instead stood angry and refused. Remember, the Pharisees had a great record of law following. They even created more rules to follow, and then followed those laws. But when we went through the Sermon on the Mount, what did Jesus say to them? You, you say you haven't committed adultery, but have you lusted after a woman in your, in, your, in your heart? He calls it to a higher level because you think you're righteous, but outside of me, you have nothing. They might follow the rules, but they could never live perfectly righteous. And so they needed a Savior. The older brother needed a Savior. He needed a gracious and merciful father, just like the younger son Needed as well. But the older brother instead was completely lost. Lost in his refusal to reconcile. Lost in his rejection of the father's joy. Lost in his striving for self-salvation. Lost in resentment for his brother's reward. Lost in the unrighteous desires of his own sinful heart. Again, religiosity doesn't save you. It is only through grace, through the death of Christ on the cross. And our last point quickly is this. Alive again. Amen. You get to the, well, there's two different times he says it, but how much joy does it give us believers to say, I was dead, but now I'm alive in him. What a beautiful picture of what happened. When it says dead and now alive, it also could be interpreted perished, but now saved. This is God's heart for the lost. This is God's heart for the lost. The plan has always been to redeem people back to himself. All are lost naturally, helplessly and willfully. You are lost naturally because we are born into sin. We are all sinners who have fallen short. We're lost helplessly because we can't do anything about it. And we're lost willfully because, darn it, we're going to do what we want to do until the radical saving work of Christ hits us. All are dead in our transgressions. Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. 
And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. You can't be the older brother here. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is the father running to the son not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. We are enemies of God in our sin, yet in his grace and mercy, he has provided a way through his son for salvation. There is, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation through Christ Jesus and only through Christ Jesus. You being in the building doesn't save you. You reading your Bible sometimes doesn't save you. I'm going to really rock some people's world. You walking down an aisle and standing in front of people doesn't save you. It's only by the conversion through the power of Christ, through someone who confesses and repents of their sin, turns towards Christ and is saved. Confess and believe. As long as there is breath in your lungs, though, he hasn't done the cutoff ceremony. Are you breathing? There's hope. As the son is sitting in the pig pen, breathing, he is hopeful of grace and mercy. It is for you. Your sins can be forgiven. You can know the love of the Father. And as I shared that one song, and I'm not going to read it because I don't want to lose it again, run to the Father. The reasons we don't run to the Father is because it's human nature staying in the pig pen. It's human nature to stay there. It's human nature to fear. The son sitting in the pig pen, he had fear of what might happen going back. We have to know that because we have to know culturally he would have been fearful of what could potentially happen. But the fear was outweighed by the hope of mercy. So we know our father's response, though. He didn't know for sure what his father's response would be. We know what our father's response is. You can know what the father's response is in his word. His response is grace and mercy for those who come. His word proclaims what our father believes. And those in Christ can show what it means to have mercy and grace shown. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for today. God, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, I pray that you allow the word to change us. I pray that you work this in our lives, that you would change us, you would make us, you would mold us as you would have us to be. God, if there's someone in here who doesn't know you, I pray that they would today realize the depth of their sin. They may not get all of it. They don't understand everything, Lord, but they understand that their sin has separated them from you. And I pray, God, that they would realize the need that they have for a Savior. If there's a believer in here who has been chasing after their lusts and their sins, and they're wallowing in that sin, Lord, I pray, Lord, today they would realize that they need to pursue you. They need to love you. They need to read your word. They need to pray. But they ultimately, God, just need to absolutely lay that sin down to you and not pick it up. Put it to death. And Lord, I pray that as believers, we don't turn into the older brother at times. 
unjoyful for the work that you are doing in people's lives. Thank you for being such a loving father. Thank you for being such a loving father. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.